Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply they might talk about human music film Books, football, and box sets, exercise, and maybe even food. Trivia and sport, politics and health, sometimes well-being too. On the life with Brian. On the life with Brian. Hello there, how's it going? Nice to have you with us for this episode of Life with Brian with your three co-hosts who have between us a combined total of four Premier Leagues, two FA Cups, a League Cup, a European Cup Winners' Cup, Scottish Cup, Scottish League Cup and not forgetting five charity shields. Um, It's Mark and Matthew um, who, let's be honest, we don't have any of those medals Um, but more notably, we have former Manchester United and Celtic schemer Brian McClare. How are you both? Very, Very good, thank you sir. Good, good. And as usual, we are joined by a special guest. And with us this time is a Scottish actor, best known for his roles in sketch shows such as Naked Video, City Lights, Only an Excuse, and is currently starring in the brilliant hit BBC sitcom Two Doors Down. It's a big welcome to Jonathan Watson. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm good, thanks. Thanks very much for having me on. It's a pleasure, sir. Um, I suppose the the thing, because it's very, very recent, um, what your view on the... The decision to remove Michael Beale as the manager of Glasgow Rangers. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I think it was inevitable, really. Uh, to be honest, I, I mean, I'm a Rangers fan, and I didn't want him as manager in the first place. Um, I didn't think he had the, the necessary experience to, to take on a club that size. And um, so it comes as no surprise. Um, and when... You know, they played one of your former clubs about a week or so ago. I mean, they, they scraped a win and the fans were still booing. So I think the writing was in the wall. He was a he was a dead man walking. So it'll be interesting to see who they who they go for. Now I, I was reading this morning some of the gossip and I think it's this is a really important call. This they'll need to get this one right because um they 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 faltered recently. So who did you um who did you fancy before Michael was appointed? Well, the thing is, Brian, I... Uh, was there a candidate then that you would have, well, have chosen? I, I, I liked... I was, I'm one of the, the few Rangers fans. I liked Van Bronckhurst. And uh-huh. I wanted Van Bronckhurst in place before Gerard came. 
because of his work at Feyenoord. And, uh, I just thought he was he was a good appointment. And I, and I think, you know, you look, I know the results didn't uh, go well for him before he, he lost the job, but if you consider that he took over Rangers from Gerrard, when Rangers weren't playing well, I mean, I know they were ahead in the league, but that was because there was a kind of iffy start from uh, uh, Ange Postacoglu before he went into the fantastic run. But Rangers weren't in a good place, and Van Bronckhurst managed to sort of settle the ship, calm everything down, and take us in this fantastic European run and get us to a European final. You know, one kick away from winning a, a fantastic trophy. Yeah. And um, I, 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 you know, I'm just a fan. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes, whether he was, you know, if Van Bronckhurst was given uh, the freedom to sign who he wanted to sign, if he was given any, any indication what budget he had to work with, you know, all these things, we don't know. But, uh, but I, would, I would have stuck with Van Bronckhurst. There you go. So you'd have him back then? I don't know. I, th- I don't think it would work coming back. Uh, it, it very seldom does. And I don't, I, th- I think, to be to be fair, to be honest, I, I, the majority of the Rangers fans wouldn't want him back. Looking on the uh, right side, you've, uh, Scotland aren't doing too badly at the minute either, I suppose. Uh, Scotland are doing great, yeah. But uh, Stevie Clark uh, has done a fantastic job. And also he's got a, he's got a great pillar players to choose from and they're all playing at a really a really good level. I was watching uh, a game at the weekend, uh, Aston Villa against Brighton and I know Brighton got hoovered but Billy Gilmer was great. Played really, really well. You know, players like that to choose from you get Tierney in Spain now and uh, Andy Robertson at Liverpool. He's got he's got a good bunch of players to choose from. Yeah. We um we always embarrass our guests by asking them who their footballing heroes were growing up. I mean, some are old enough to, you know, not say Brian McClare. I dare say you won't say Brian McClare. But um, who were your boyhood heroes as a as a Rangers fan in your youth? Well, starting off as a, bear in mind, I'm a lot older than uh, you guys. But uh, my my first uh, favourite player was a guy who just passed away not that long ago, Davy Wilson. He played in the left wing at Rangers and in a fantastic Rangers team in the sixties. So he was my my uh, my first sort of uh, hero. And then more recently, it was the likes of David Cooper. He was a fantastic player, sort of lift you out of your seat once he went around tremendous. But I also liked uh, Dalglish and also Sunis. I thought Sunis was. A fantastic player, just world class. When I, when I, not long after I left drama college, one of my pals uh, was working in Lancaster as a civil engineer. We used to go down and pick him up at the weekend, go down into Liverpool. And one of my other mates would get tickets to go and see Liverpool play. And they were at that time they were winning European Cups, and to watch them was just fantastic. You know, the, the goalkeeper would give the ball to Hansen, Hansen would give it to Sunis, and he would just dictate the whole. The whole play it was it was brilliant to watch. So, yeah, he was a he was a he was he's one of my favourites. But you you weren't compromised when he went to Celtic then, or, or being a Celtic, you know, obviously went to Liverpool after Celtic. But I mean, you weren't compromised that he was a, a Celtic man. Who was a Celtic man? Yeah, Gleish. 
No, 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 no. So, well, in fact, Brian will know this. Douglas is actually a Rangers fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He certainly, yeah. Was. He certainly yeah. was growing up because the story goes that Sean Fallon, when he went to sign him as a schoolboy, he went up because he lived in the, the high flats beside the Albion training ground at Edmondson Drive. And uh, when Sean Fallon went up, he took t- t- all, his, all his Rangers posters off his bedroom wall. So, uh, no, no, he's, he's, a, he's a fantastic player. And uh, I've been forcing enough uh, through all an excuse. I've got to meet, meet him a few times and uh, been fortunate enough to perform at a couple of charity things that his wife Marina set up. So, yeah, good memories. It's, um, you were, um, you'd been involved in uh, acting all your life, really, well, since you were a young, about 10 years of age, weren't you? So you first, first did an introduction to the uh, thespian world. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's right. The, like I think it was about 11, 11 or twelve when I did my first uh, television play. But uh, when I was about ten, my dad came home one night and, and said, "Look, there's a junior course at the the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama in Glasgow. Do you fancy giving it a go? It's a Saturday morning thing. It was actually Saturday morning and Wednesday after school, and uh, I'd never tried anything like that." in my life at that time, you know, drama wasn't part of the school curriculum. And uh but I was an only I was an only child and I think my dad was always keen to look for things that, you know, would involve me uh well with other kids because when you're an only child you you spend a lot of your time in the grown up um, of adults, you know. Like this is days before social media. How would your dad find out about that? You know, was it, did he read it in the paper or something or did somebody no, mention it to him? It was somebody at work. It was somebody my dad was a well, he's trained as a commercial artist and he was in advertising, and uh, which which is the, the the path that I very nearly followed. But he, um, somebody at work mentioned it to him. He said, "You, you, you, Jonathan, might quite like this." They knew somebody that had tried it. It was a, it was quite a a unique thing at that time. There was a real uh, mixture of kids that used to go along to Alex Alex Norton, who I worked with in two doors down. He went along to it as well. He was for the Gorbals. I was brought up St. George's Cross, but you would get kids from Newton Mearns. I mean, you guys, that's a very affluent part of Glasgow. Newton Mearns, White Craigs, Ossel. You know, it was a real melting pot. <laughs> and um, I absolutely loved it. I, I loved it. Now, I did it for about, um, I thought I was about 17. But at that time, with the BBC, particularly the BBC, if they were casting anything, they would come along on a Saturday and they would sit up the back and uh, look and see the, what kids, what the kids were doing. If there was any that they thought might, you know, do the trick for them, might be suitable for the part, you would be asked to read. And uh, I get into it quite early on. And I did it. The first thing I did was a Wednesday play, which was the forerunner for play for today, and it was a really good part. And uh, it went well. And after that, I did. An awful lot of stuff. You know, Doctor Finley's case book, Sutherland's Law. Worked with Alan Parker, the filmmaker. That just before he went into movies, did a big commercial with him. But it meant that the first, my first two years at secondary school, I wasn't there all that much actually. I was getting time off to do stuff. But that was the, that was my sort of introduction into the world of the TV. Yeah. And what, during that time, from those times you were in that, did you find that you you were funny or you could make people laugh or was that something that happened later on? 
No, I used to, uh, yeah, actually, if you find, if you ask a, a lot of actors, they'll come back with more or less the same answer. I used to do mimicry and stuff like that. I'd, you know, be able to do the voices of the teachers and stuff like that. And uh, so, yeah, I was able to, to turn my hand to be a bit of comedy then. But no, and when I was doing the television stuff, it was it was all drama stuff. It wasn't, uh, there was no comedy involved. Um, no, I was just mean about the, the mimicry, you know, because that, that clearly is something you'd done for a long, long time before you honed it when you started doing the, it's only an excuse, you know, it's something you knew you could do. And you'd be likely to say you probably watched and and listened and noted the because one of the things that I like most about the uh, it's not it's it's how you do the um, how they act how those people are acting so all those football personalities it's not what you're saying as much as it's all the nuances that you've studied maybe looks and stuff that, that, that become you exaggerating but it's that, that all of them are exactly what they do or what they did do and I think that's brilliant, and that's a lot to do with observation. Oh, thank you. Well, that's well. Observations a a big part of of acting, you know. And uh, as a result, I mean, there's an awful lot of actors that can do uh, great uh, mimicry as well, you know. Uh, uh, like for instance, I mentioned Alex. Uh, like Alex Norton does a brilliant James Mason, which is really difficult to do. Elaine can do. Elaine C can do. Silla Black, you know, Andy Gray, my pal Andy Gray is no longer with us. He used to do Sean Connery, you know. So actors, I've usually got somebody in the, the locker that they can do, you know. Yeah, Brian Brian brought up um, only an excuse there. And for our non-Scots listeners who are probably not so familiar with the football sketch show, um, which you fronted on TV for 27 years, and I think it was on radio before that, right? Um oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a it was a Hogmanay staple on the BBC north of the border. So you're you're probably as much of a New Year TV tradition as Jules Holland and his hooting nanny. <laughs> well, that's actually that's the program that we used to always what I turned over to after we watched the our program go out. No, it was it was uh, it was great to do. It was a privilege to be part of it. And uh, could you even say twenty seven years there? I mean, when we started out on the radio, we never for a minute thought it would. It would last as long and um, and be as uh, successful, I suppose, as, as it was. But yeah, just thinking that you, you know, on that show, you did so many impressions of the the great and good from the Scottish um, football scene down the years. Um, I assume most of them took it well, but did anyone uh, anyone take exception to the Mickey taking? Yeah, there's. I think there's there's probably a few that that did the. Um, you know the thing. The thing is, I, at the end of the day, a good joke is going to sort of rankle with somebody. You know, so you've got to you've got to accept that. But uh, it wasn't too bad. There was a it, when we started out. This uh, this was this didn't affect me. But uh, when Tony Roper was was doing the program as well, he used to do a takeoff of Gordon McQueen, and Gordon. Was he too happy with it? And to be fair to Gordon, it wasn't really an accurate uh, taking of his, his voice. It was more a sort of caricature, and it didn't sort of shed him in a good light. So I could understand uh, his nose being out of joint with that. The, the, time that the, the one time that it happened with me was actually at... Uh, it was out with only an excuse, but 
Brian's old gaffer, Sir Alex Ferguson, phoned me up and he was doing a, a charity night uh, in Glasgow for Harmony Row Boys Club. And I think that's the first, I think that's when I met you, Brian. I think you were uh, that night. Probably was at that, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was uh, it was up in Victoria's nightclub, which is and it, it's no longer there now, but it's quite a famous uh, establishment in this day. And uh, so Fergie asked me to do this. Uh, he said, would you do would you do a bit of only an excuse? So Philip Differ, you devised only an excuse. He very kindly put together a script for me. And I was sitting there, I was looking through it just before I was about to perform it. And uh, there was a gag that I wondered about. I thought it was a bit near the bone. And I said to Andy Cameron, very famous Scottish comedian, he was a uh, big pal of Fergie's. I said, Andy, what do you think? I said, that gag there... Uh, about David Hay, what do you think about it? He went, oh, that's great. And then Sir Alex, what's, what's going on? I said, it's that gag there, I'm not too sure. But he said, oh, he says, just do it, it's fine, just do it. So I did the gag, and it was, David was manager of Celtic at the time, and uh, it was, he came into the room, he was like, no, no, come in, David, have a seat. No, no, on the chair, no, on the floor, right? And it got a big laugh. Little did I know, Davey, he was in the audience. And he was raging, right? Not happy at all. And I was whisked away by uh, Roy Aiken and Billy, Billy Kirkwood. And I was remember Big Roy said, oh, fuck him, just leave it, forget it, right? And um, anyway, about a week later at the Football Players Player of the Year Award, Davey was there with a white tuxedo, and he was quite a, quite a scary guy. My, my big pal, Tony Higgins, used to say he was the the, the hardest player ever played against. He said, he's like the silent assassin. And uh, anyway, David was standing there with a white tuxedo on. And Philip Differ was with him. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to apologise to, to David Hay for last week. He said, don't just leave it. I said, no, no, I'm going to do it. So I went up to him and I said, David, I'm, I'm really sorry about the you were offended at the gag last week, I'm, I apologise. And he, he said, he said, don't worry about it, son. He said, it's fine. He said, I'm just glad I was there and I didn't hear it second hand. So God knows what would have happened to me if that had been the case. <laughs> but, uh, that, that's about the only time I really, I mean, Frank McAvery, he, he sometimes, or it's maybe his agent, kicks up a stink and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, the one occasion we were doing a, a week's run at the King's Theatre, and uh, he said he was going to picket it because he was furious that they were making more money being me out of <laughs> me. And so we got all this publicity. We were sold out for a week. You couldn't get a ticket for loving the money. So, but uh, no, but we've actually, we've, it's been fine. So everybody seems to take it in, you know, in good spirit because it's meant, you know, we're, we're lovers of the game, you know, we don't mean to offend. And I think, Maybe Brian, you can buy me up here. I think you know the the, the wicked sense of humour in our football dressing room is probably much harsher than what we were dishing out. So, oh yeah, yes, very, very, very much so. Yeah, so that's you, you would, you would, but but what you, that's confined within the dressing. Nobody really wants to, yeah, you know, be except if you go back to the the naked radio stuff. You know, when you were doing that, 
I used to pray that you're not going to do me. <laughs> yeah. I said, oh, please. Yeah, because you used to listen to it or people record it for me, you know, because they live in England. And then I was thought, oh, please don't be doing me, you know, because I just didn't want <laughs> to have this. You, you, you just don't want people to be really to be saying that, are you, how you sound or how you look of all this. Kid. I've had a lot more of it now because I'm a, uh, because of, I've got I've, I've got older and I've got a beard and I've got long hair, you know, and social media yeah. and all that stuff. But at the time, I didn't. If we're, want still, to doing, have... if we're still doing the program. You'd have been great. So is that the makeup girls? Oh yeah, so thank you. Ever make a comeback? There you go. You've got your uh, yeah. your prime target for the lampooning. That. I'll just do it myself. That's <laughs> good. Is there a, is there one particular impression that people always sort of stop you in the street and ask you to do, or people remember fondly, or is it? Well, the, yeah, there's a there's a few. I can tell you. I mean, I, I uh, with um, with two doors down, one one of the the actors in it is uh, is a guy who was he's a wrestler as well as an actor called Grado, Graham Stevely. I mean, he got on really really well. He's he's one of he's the only other Rangers fan in in the cast and crew. So uh, we if we're, if we're sitting in the the couch, I'm usually stuck beside Grado. And uh, when we're about to do a scene, we do really long scenes, you know, like 10 page scenes. And usually it's either myself or Elaine that's got to drive it and it's got the, the bulk of the dialogue. So you've really got to be focused and you've really got to concentrate. So, you know, you'll go through it a few times and then they'll decide they'll write, we're ready to shoot now. So you got all your checks and everything like that. Sound guy's ready. The camera's just about to turn over and they're just about to show you action. And Grado will nudge me in the arm and go, Johnny, hey, Graham soon, I say. And you're like, <laughs> you shut up. <laughs> but, uh, so Soonest is one that I get asked to do. Uh, Philip still gets me to do Dennis Law from, from time to time. From um, And what other ones? These are... People ask me to do Frank McAvaney, but I can't do that without the teeth. So um, <laughs> I'm not sure who that one, you know. Yeah, I saw a, I saw an interview with him uh, online actually, and, and I posted a clip of um, a fantastic sketch that he did with him, the the petrol station sketch. I put it on our Twitter account. Um, but he, he says he, he says he all that he really enjoyed it in the main, and um, he seemed to take it pretty well, although he does dispute the fact that he ever said his catchphrase, where's the birds? Well, listen, I'll, I'll pick you up. I'll tell you what happened with that. Um, he did say it. He just can't remember it. He'd be, be out of his box or something like that, but he he, he wandered into Baird's Bar, which is a, a bar in the East End of Glasgow, one morning. We know this for a fact because there used to be a wee guy that worked in uh, the store in the BBC studios called Andy Hutton. Um, I know him. You know Andy? Yeah. Great wee guy. He's retired now, Brian. But, yeah, I met him um, in, the, uh, in Glasgow. Yeah, well, Philip was, was friendly with, with Andy, as, as I was as well. You always uh, chat away about, about the football. And Andy was in Baird's Bar one, one morning, about 11 o'clock, and Frank wandered into the bar, and he looked about, and he said to the barman, there's a boss. <laughs> and Andy told us this, right? <laughs> and that thought said, Oh, I see that's that's dynamite. So that's how we use we wouldn't we wouldn't be able to think think that up, but he did say it and it was well, in Baird's bar. Anytime I ever see Frank, I didn't I didn't actually play in the same team as Frank at all, you know, but every time I see him every now and again, 
And uh, he he said he says that's one of the things he'll say when you're chatting away, and he'll come out with that. <laughs> so even even he might not remember it now, he will say it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got, yeah. Like, it's just this part of his part of his personality, you know. Yeah, I, either that or uh, you guys are writing his material. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's nicking our scripts. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, he's, he's a good guy, and he was a great player as well. Well, that would be a bit of a problem because I don't think Frank can read, can he? I think he was at school long <laughs> enough to learn. Hey, you said it, not me. I'm quite happy to say it, you know. <laughs> Chucky, did you or any of your teammates do any good impressions of each other? I think that they would always do. Uh, you would always do bits about the manager, you know, try to do bits about or Alex Ferguson, you know, and, and maybe even be influenced by uh, the the stuff that you were doing on um, it's only an excuse, you know, but one of the things that I mean, I, I would have thought he'd have, he'd have hated that. I mean, he's a great sense of humour, Alex Ferguson. Something you learn is you spend more time with him, but it's the sort of thing I thought he'd have hated, you know, that, that people parried in him, you know, particularly yeah. uh, on such a uh, wonderful show. Uh, but what you do is, and the, what you're doing is you're mirroring or you're exaggerating those things he did. And he, but he, that's what he did, all those things that you see him doing. He, he uh, said to me, Brian, he said, uh, have, you know, yeah. Uh, been in this company a few times and um, he said oh he says you, you can't do me you can't do me he said Giggs he can do me you can't but, uh, but his brother Martin lives in the corner from us and Martin loves it uh, he he absolutely loves it but uh, and Fergie is one, one of my favourite ones to do as well we once did we, we asked Kirsty uh, Wark to interview him Interview me as Fergie, and she was fantastic. She was she was brilliant. She she did it as if she was interviewing like a politician in Newsnight. She was completely dead straight and a water street. But uh, Sigan Bagler, you know how you mentioned the 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 sketch that you put up of Maka doing the in the film station, uh, the Pump Two sketch. I heard this, and uh, if you're ever speaking to. Frank, again, you can ask me to verify this, but somebody was telling me that he was uh, at some event uh, not long after that sketch went out. And uh, we had two really good-looking girls in, in the sketch, but the father of one of them <laughs> approached Maka and said, that was one of my... That was, that was my daughter you were talking to. He's going, what? He said, the one that you said pumped too. That's, that's, my, that's my daughter who's... Not pleased about it. You said that, Frank. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> yeah, um, so was the 2020 Only an Excuse special absolutely the last one? You're not tempted to go back? Um, if only if only to get stuck back into Brendan Rodgers again, now he's back to Celtic. No, no, no. No, no. The, 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 was it 20? Was 2020? Was that the last the last one, was it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no. The... the uh, it was the right time to bring the program to an end, you know. It, uh, it, uh, you know, the programs have got a, a lifespan, and we just reached the end of ours. And you know, irrespective of you know how much fun we had doing it and all that, you know, sometimes you just got to realise, no, we need to finish it now and move on. So I wouldn't be tempted to to go back in. So yeah. With 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, website for details. I read somewhere that um, you went to London in the 80s for a couple of years. Is that right? I did, yeah. If yeah why, why did you decide to go and what happened while you were there? Because there's very little mention of... Well, the, the, the thing, I think I know, you, if you got this from Wikipedia, uh, somebody actually sabotaged my, my Wikipedia page and said something along the lines of, he went down to London for a couple of years, but it didn't work out and he came back up the road. No, I, didn't, I, just, yeah, I just saw the bit about you went. I was just quite intrigued about, you know, the... Well, why you went to London really is interesting. Well, being interesting, you know. The the reason I, I went down is because my my agent is is a London agent, right? And I had uh, I joined forces with Scott Marshall's about nineteen eighty three, something like that. And uh, at that time. You don't have to do it so much now because of because of Zoom and all this kind of stuff. It was important to go down and, and meet casting directors and, and things like that. So I I went down and I lived there. I was based there for about three years. And and it was at the time that I was doing naked video in City Lights, which took up a big part of the year, but my base was doing and I I did a a few jobs while I was while I was there, but um, I, I was there for three years. And about nineteen eighty nine, I was looking to try and, and buy my first flat. And at that time, you couldn't afford a flat in London; you just couldn't afford it. And I took the decision to come back up and uh, be beside my family, and yeah, and. And that was it. So it was a good. It was a good three years. It was uh, it was productive in that I met a lot of people, and uh, and that stood me in good stead for a number of years. But uh, I came back up because I couldn't afford to live down there. I couldn't. I couldn't buy a flat. I just couldn't. It was a fortune, and uh, I came back up to Glasgow. Yeah, yeah that's a, yeah, that's a relevant story to that. Right about the same time, Pat and Evan moved from Clyde to Chelsea. And uh, after a year of living in London, Pat went to the bank manager to go to see if he could get a mortgage to buy a property, a flat on the, uh, somewhere around about Chelsea. And uh, the bank manager said to him, can you bring your contract in so that I can see, you know, how much you're getting paid as an evidence of what you're getting paid? Hey, no problem. He said, went in the following week, his contract and showed the guy's contract. And he just laughed at him. Really? 
<laughs> yeah, I just laughed at him and went, nah, you've no chance of getting a, you've no chance of buying a property around about where you're thinking about for that kind of money you're on. And he was, he was on decent football money at the time, you know. Is that and, because, uh, partly because the precariousness of the... No, it's just because the guy wouldn't give him the amount of money he needed based on what he was earning, you know. Listen, when end, I, when ended was... up having he ended up having to buy a flat with his, his pal. Oh, so that was the only way they could end up to do uh, it. You know, the uh, Simon Ramond who's in who's in the Cocteau twins, that's how they managed to buy a flat, you know, or whatever, you know. So see. well I, I remember when I did Local Hero in eighty two, <clears throat> I'd made a few bob doing that job and I went I went to to the bank manager of the building society to try and get <laughs> everything in place to buy a flat in Glasgow. And everything was all lined up. It was, shows you how long ago it was. It was about 13 grand for a one-bedroom flat in England, right? And uh, I had a good chunk of it to pay for it. And because I was an actor at that time, they were reluctant to give actors mortgages. And I remember going to the guy and saying, look, can we put this through? And he went, nice, I'm going to change your heart. You're not getting it. I said, give me my money back. <laughs> yeah, so... We've um, we've got to touch on the success of Two Doors Down, um, haven't we? Um, and it's moving to BBC One too. Surely that's a an indicator of its success, right there, isn't it? Well, I hope so. It, it, it's 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 done it's done uh, pretty well since it's uh, been on BBC Two. Um, you know, we we didn't think for a second it would you know grow into what it has because initially it was a one-off. You know, it was a, a one-hour comedy drama, if you like. And um, it came about very quickly. I mean, we like I got a call on the, the Thursday to go down and meet them on the Friday. And by the Monday, the contract was all in place. And we did this. We filmed for about uh, 10 days non-stop in the house in Paisley from 8 in the morning till 8 at night. It went out on New Year's Eve in BBC One. And because of the likes of social media beginning to kick off, it, the program took off. And uh, um, about two, one and a half years later, we started the series. And when uh, this thing BBC Two, um, it's been it's been great. Um, we love doing it, and uh, well, hope hopefully the, the switch to BBC One works. We're, we're still doing the post production in the last series. Um, which we filmed, stopped filming a few weeks ago. Uh, the press will be ne- beginning of next month for about three days in London, and then it'll go out, I think, around about the middle of November, the uh, the first one gets transmitted, yeah. So for anyone that hasn't seen it, how would you um, describe your character, Colin, and uh, and how much of yourself have you put into him? None of myself. <laughs> he's, a, he's a complete pain in the arse, but he's, he's great to play. Uh, and then, but listen, I'm not the one because Elaine C always says, John, he's nothing like that. He's nothing like that. He's not like that guy. Um, but oh, he's just, he's always going to get one up and is, says the worst things without blinking an eye. He's. Uh, yeah, yeah, my idea of the worst neighbour ever. But, um, but you know, little groups of people are built up with different kinds of folk and you get people like that. And uh, 
I think one of the reasons that the show has enjoyed a bit of success is people, no matter where they are in the UK, they can relate to the different characters um, in in that setup, and uh, it's 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 done out of all the work I've done. It's got more recognition all over the, uh, the UK than anything I can think of. I mean, you know, I was doing, I did uh, Doctor Who the last. Jodie Whittaker's last series of Doctor Who. So I was down in Wales for quite a while. People in Wales go nuts for it. You know, you go down to London and do an interview or an audition. People stop you in the street. I've never had anything like that before. So I, I hope that I hope the the transfer at BBC One works and uh, you know it it goes on. Yeah. Well, it's a brilliant cast of some of Scotland's most recognisable comedy actors, including Elaine C. Smith, who you've already mentioned there. Um, I, when she plays Christine, she just shows up and she steals most of the scenes that she's in, which is some feat considering the rest of the talent who are in the show. Um, you've worked with her for 40 odd years. Is she as much of a legend off screen as she is on it? Oh, yeah, I'm very, I'm, yeah, I'm very fond of I've, I've known her since, oh, God, more than that. I've known her since 19. 19- uh, 76 yeah 1976 because she was uh, she was the year above me at drama college uh, in Glasgow although I'm, I'm a couple of years older than her so I didn't go straight from school and uh, she's she's a great person and uh, a very good friend of mine and uh, and she's great fun to work with yeah me me um, me Elaine and Alex are usually the ones that can crack up with the giggles on set. So, yeah, she's great fun. Um, and apart from only in the excuse, obviously, um, it seems like there's an absence of real-world football banter or references from a lot of the Scottish sitcoms and sketch shows, which always leaves me pondering, like, you know, which teams certain characters might support. But is that a deliberate thing when these shows are written to, to avoid alienating anyone over just silly little things like football? I don't know. It, it may be. It may very well be. Um, I mean, they are quite precious about, uh, or careful, I should say, about, um, you know, if, you, if you're going to mention one team, you've got to sort of balance it with with the other. Uh, and the BBC are quite wary of that. I mean, I can tell you a story. When we, when we were finishing up with Only an Excuse, uh, they wanted an, an hour special to show some greatest hits, like Pump 2, but also some new stuff. But it was still quite a lot to fill up. So I, I, the production meeting, I said, look, why don't, um, why don't we uh, get people who we've taken off, like ask Walter Smith, Graham Soonis, Ken Dalglish, if you know what their memories are of the programme, and that was thought to be a good idea, and the the three of them did it, uh, um, they accepted right away. There was no problem with that. But one of the ones I wanted to ask was Neil Lennon, and they wouldn't they wouldn't let Neil do it unless they get somebody like Alan McCoy to balance it out. Uh, and it was it, of course you can't, but I'll tell you, you can't Neil Coyce down so. And we you know, a tight schedule I work with. So we ended up, Lenny wasn't asked. So do you want to hear the story about Lenny and all on excuse? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. So we were having a production meeting and Lenny was his first spell Celtic manager. And 
the girls in the wardrobe department said, look, we, we can't get a hold of his tracksuit jacket, his tracky top. We can't get it. Nike were doing it at, at that time, and it was it was black. And the inside collar was green, white, and gold. And uh, they couldn't get it. And I said, look, I said, I'll try and get it, right? So I phoned Chick Young up, and I said, Chick, what, what, uh, what game are you doing at the weekend? He said, I'm, in, I'm at Parkhead, Celtic, in the next Caledonia Thistle. I said, listen, you do me a favour. Would you ask Lenny if we can borrow his tracksuit top? He goes, for fuck's sake, you're kidding me. I said, no, no, just ask him, he'll be all right. So Chick, um, Chick arrived at Parkhead, was doing the pre-match stuff, and interviewed Neil, and at the end of it, he said, look, Johnny was wondering if he could borrow your tracksuit top for only an excuse. And Lenny got, you're kidding me. He said, no, he's the, the guy who go to the jack. And he said, see, see me at the end of the game. So the game took place, and uh, unbelievably, Inverness Cali Thistle beat Celtic, right? And Neil got involved in a bit of a rally with people behind the dugout, Celtic fans, a bit of an altercation. Uh, so in the game, Chickett interviewed the two managers. So he interviewed Big Terry Butcher, who was manager in Inverness. And then uh, he to interview Neil. And the interview wasn't going well at all. Neil was raging. And in the end, he stormed off. And Chickett just said, and he said, and by the way, he said, can I get the tracky off for Johnny? And he had this hurdle of abuse thrown at him. But we got the tracksuit top and uh, used it for the program. Then I returned it to him in a bottle of Blue Nun. <laughs> so, uh, no, he's, a, he's a good guy. You, you've got to tell me, how does uh, how does you get, you get a call or a message or a note or something that you said, can you uh, read for Doctor Who? Where does that come from? How do you feel? Do you, were you made up? Do you think it was a piss take? What, what, how did it transpire? Well, what happened was there's a guy called Andy Pryor that is the casting director for uh, for Doctor Who. And uh, my agent had said that he was trying to get me on board for a, for a while. And what happened, it was quite simple, Brian, I got a phone call um, from my agent. It was, it was a Friday night, actually. It was the last thing on a Friday. And she said, Joanna, look, this, uh, Andy's wondering if you could read for for Doctor Who, um, part of the commander of the St. Arms. And I haven't watched Doctor Who since Patrick Troughton was in it. So um, I said, I fired it through. They wanted it for Monday. So I had to tape it, do a cell tape over the weekend. So my son, uh, he was at home at the time. He's he's a big Doctor Who fan. I said, listen, I've got this cell tape. You give me a hand on it. He said, what's that? I said, it's for Doctor Who. He said, Wait, what's the part? I said, it's, I don't know, it's Commander of the St. Arms. He went, that, that's, that's huge, <laughs> that's huge. So anyway, I, I did the tape, sent it off. They watched it on the Monday, and I got offered the job on the Tuesday. And it was, it was during lockdown. So when I had to travel down to Cardiff for my fittings and for filming and everything, I had, to, I had to drive down and I had a special letter with Doctor Who heading in case the police <laughs> stopped me in the motorway. And then I absolutely loved it. It was 
it was the most fantastic job. Um, the makeup was something else. I mean, if I was on set at eight o'clock in the morning, I took up about half three. So, uh, but I loved it. And Jodie Whittaker and all the cast, they were they were great. They were brilliant. And uh, there's one thing about that when you're looking at that. I mean, because I've seen, I, I remember the uh, uh, the character from early on in the time. It's one of the scary ones, or one of the proper scary ones in the way it was. And yeah, I believe you played it with a bit of a Scottish accent. But the other thing about it, when you look at it, you've got to eat, haven't you, and do other things when you're wearing all this gear. So yeah, yeah. I, I tried to manage. It's not as if it's a head you put on, is it? You just take the head off, is it? Oh, it's no, like, no. You're caked and all this. How do you eat and Go to the toilet or whatever else you've got to do. That's the first thing you ask, Brian. How am I going to go to the toilet? So that that was okay. That was <laughs> that was a problem. The, the head was, I mean, it was like in three or four different parts. But if I, I also had uh, teeth that fitted over my own. I mean, you to you to cl- unclip them, and then you could actually eat no problem. You know, having lunch was all right. It was just a bit of a Bind trying to get it, but um, it was. I mean, I, I just I loved it. I mean, I saw uh, I saw Jodie Whittaker and uh, Manda Gill, who played her assistant, uh, about a, it was about a year ago. Down at the, there was a big do for the hundredth anniversary of the BBC at the Natural History Museum, and I'm standing, obviously not in the St. Arm gear, and they were about six feet away from me, and they didn't bat an eyelid. And uh, Joy McAvoy, who's in two doors down, she said, "You're not going to say hello to them." I said, "Well, they've they've never seen me without the Sultan <laughs> gear." And uh, so Joy said, "She's hey, you two, you're not going to say hello to Commander Scott." And they were like, "Oh, Johnny!" <laughs> so, uh, but they, they, she was she was absolutely brilliant. She was uh, a great great person to work with. Yeah. And- and have you been to any Doctor Who conventions? Yeah, I've been to uh, a few. Actually, I was down in Swansea last week. Do you have to get dressed up as Commander? No, no. Listen, I'll tell you this one. You'll love this. this the <laughs> second one I did, second convention, and I never thought I would pass along to these things, but I get invited out to Los Angeles, to this yeah. one called Gallifrey, right? Yeah. So... It's a three-day, I was there for a week, but it's about a three-day event. And I'm sitting beside Sylvester McCoy, who's one of the doctors. Yeah. I've done I've done a play with Sylvester about 12 years or so ago, so I know him really well. He's a lovely wee guy. He's just brilliant. So the two of us are sitting at the desk and we're signing autographs. And uh, this guy approaches me. And a big American guy with a beard. And he's dressed head to toe, like Jodie Whittaker, right? <laughs> he's got the wig on, he's got the jumper, he's got the trousers, the boots, he must have got a force, and he's got his big beard. So he wanders up, and I go, hi there, and he goes, hi, and um, you know, usual pleasantries, thanks me for restoring the Santan Empire to its rightful place in the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> so, no problem, mate, no problem. And then, and, I, and he said, at the end of it, he said, um, he said, I wonder if you'd sign this for me. And he went inside his court and he brought out a box set of two doors down. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going, you're fucking kidding me. And he went, no, no, he said, he said, 
He's now watching Brett Box. So uh, I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I do a few few of the conventions and they're, they're they're great fun. They really are. Yeah. That's wonderful. You uh you tried to go on appear on stage at least once a year. Yeah. I was wondering if you ever have you ever done or you ever consider or you any uh, ambition to do Chekhov, Ibsen, Shakespeare, King Lear, perhaps? I've done I've done Chekhov a uh, couple of times. I haven't I haven't done Ibsen. I've done Shakespeare. Uh, I, I I do plan to uh, do a, go again soon with a with a one man play that was written for me by um, a, one of Scotland's top playwrights, a guy called Douglas Maxwell. And I did it uh, last a year past in February. Uh, so I think that there's sort of talks of maybe doing doing that again. So uh, that's that's one of the things I'm hoping to do. But uh, I've done I've done quite a lot of theatre in, in the course of the the years I've been doing this game. So I think it's, I always think it's for me it's important to try and do touch base with doing a theatre job, but once every year, year and a half, so you don't lose the fear. Yeah. So, so do you think it's more well, clearly more terrifying to do it in front of a live audience than it is to do two doors down, for example? It's it's not it's not terrifying. It, it's it's just a different discipline, and uh, it. I think it it just keeps you in your in your toes, you know. Uh, I mean, there's still pressure on on doing a, a, a something that's that's filmed, you know. Uh, because although you know you you get a number of goes at it, you you want to try and nail it pretty early on. And Gregor Fisher, who I worked with years ago, I always remember what he said. He said, "If you don't get in the third take, forget it." Now that's not necessarily true, but it 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 sharpens your senses a wee bit. It focuses you a wee bit, uh, and I always try and nail it pretty early on. You know, and one thing that's it's relevant, I suppose, to both our disciplines. Is how do you do you ever read the critics' reviews, or do you react to them, or good, bad, or indifferent, or do you not bother? Well, I very early on in my career, I worked with Fulton Mackay, right? Who was he was great with me. Uh, I, I really I learned so much from from working with him, and uh, I was only a, a about probably about three years out of drama college, two, three years out of drama college. And Fong said to me, he said, never read them. Never read them. Uh, he said, they're irrelevant. Uh, and he said, if you do read them, he said, you've got to treat the good ones the same as you do the bad ones. Right? And my dad worked in the newspapers quite early on in his career. My dad used to always say, any critics listening will not be happy with this. And I used to say, just remember, it's the least most important part of a newspaper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I don't, I don't, I don't read them. And uh, if I finish a job, because I've been doing this for over forty odd years, if I finish a job, I might, I might look at it now because usually send through a, a press pack, 
and I'll look at it now, but, you know, it doesn't really bother me. You know, I know if it's worked or it hasn't worked, you know? Right. I know if I haven't been on the ball, I don't need anybody to tell me, you know? You know yourself, you know, you know, I don't know if you, if you were playing a game and you didn't think you were, or like, oh, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. No, you knew the same thing, and it, it, it's well, you know, the the our director, as in Alex Ferguson, would let you know exactly what he felt about your <laughs> performance, you know. So he, he didn't necessarily need anyone else to say. But and you're right, you know, when you played well or you played poorly or indifferently, and what you did right, what you did wrong. Um, what well, the thing now was bolted against, and one of the reasons why I've never really been involved in it now is that the ex-players being criticising, you know, and no doubt that they hated ex-players criticising them, but it seems to perpetuate, you know. Yeah, that, yeah. I can understand that, and it's, there's very much more opportunities for people to to earn a living out of, of being involved in that side of, uh, of football. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I didn't like it. I, I, well, I didn't like it. I mean, it's, it's not... Like yourself is the same thing, and you grow, you grow a bit of a th- you get thick skin to it and immune to it, but it kind of affects maybe like your your family more than anything else, you know. Yeah, I mean, it can't, I mean, <clears throat> I think I, I, very early on in my career, I was only about a year two out uh, of college, and uh, I, I read a, a review that that wasn't. It wasn't a bad one, but it, it, it was a sort of underhand compliment, and it kind of put me off, you know, put me off for about a week. And uh, that the lesson I learned from that is don't look at it, you know, don't read it, you know, because it 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 had it, a, a negative impact on me. So yeah. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Yes, it's quiz time again, and regular listeners will know what to expect as we embark upon a battle of wits between Chucky and our special guest. So, in Jonathan's honour, we've called this episode's game Is That Your Excuse? And, and here are the rules for you both. It's the usual penalty shootout format with five alternate questions. And what you have to tell us is whether or not these pathetic excuses for losses or failure are real or made up. Um, and I can reveal that Alex Ferguson's blaming of Manchester United's grey third kit clashing with the crowd against Southampton does not make the cut. However, to commemorate that famous excuse from 1996, if you think something is a genuine excuse offered, say third kit. And if it's false and entirely made up by me, say don't believe it. Okay, so you I, I thought you were going to come up. I thought there was going to be a different rhyming in there. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so we've got third kit if you think it's true, and don't believe it if you think it's false. Okay, so Jonathan, you have the pleasure of going first, and your Hello. opener is this. 
Kenny Dalglish once blamed his Liverpool side's defeat at Aston Villa on a late-running Topshop fashion shoot for Blazers, featuring John Barnes and Barry Venison, which meant the pair were forced to miss a vital league game in the 1990 title race. Don't care. Well, you've missed your first penalty. That's uh, that's false. It's a don't believe it. I, entire, I mean, John Barnes and Barry Venison were famous for their gaudy blazers, but unfortunately that's one completely made up by me. Yeah, um, Mark spent a lot of his time making some of these up. So, um, you know, don't be surprised by some of the some of the false excuses. Um, here's your first one, Shockey. And, oh, look, it's Kenny Dalglish again. This time he's managing Newcastle in an FA Cup tie at Stevenage in 1998. And the reason for the Magpies being taken to a replay was the ball used in the nil-nil draw was too bouncy. Pertica. Yes, good start. Yep, um, that was his excuse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem to get the stick that Fergie would get for these. <laughs> <laughs> mm. You've taken an early lead there, Brian. Uh, Jonathan, uh, you playing catch-up. So your yeah. second excuse is that of another Scotsman. Uh, it's Chucky's mate, Gordon Strachan. Um, and after failing to qualify for the 2018 World Cup, he claimed that Scotland's players were genetically inferior to those of other nations because they were too small. Third kit. That's, that is third kit. <laughs> yeah, that is third kit. Correct. Yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> was he speaking from experience or must be? <laughs> I think I, I think I was standing next to him when he said that. I'm thinking, what are you saying? You can't. I don't know. We don't go. Gordon's one of the funniest people I've, I've ever come across. I don't know whether that was a glib comment or not. You know, mm. it's now there as a third kit excuse. <laughs> yeah. All right. So one's each. Okay. Over to you then, Matthew. Yeah, uh, Brian. I promise this is the last of our Scots, and it's uh, Graham Soonis who once suggested his Rangers team lost a game at Hibernian because his players had picked up a nasty do- dose of food poisoning from porridge served at the uh, club canteen. Don't believe it. Yeah, folks, don't believe it. Well, uh, well, there's Scotland. no way you can't get food poisoning from porridge. <laughs> porridge kills. Porridge will kill everything. Because <laughs> it's getting mid. Mark, you should, Mark, with your Scottish roots, you should have known that when you're making this up. I know, maybe I was just being too obvious. Okay, all right. <laughs> all right, Jonathan, catch up again. Um, and your third one is uh, Everton manager Joe Royal blamed a poor performance at Ipswich by goalkeeper Neville Southall on the fact he'd strained his shoulder muscles, helping to change a burst tyre on the team bus on the way down to Portman Road. False. It is That's false. Get- that, no, it's a don't. It is a don't believe it. Jonathan's got that one spot on. No. Yeah, uh, that's two two. But you've got one in hand there, Brian. Okay, uh, Shocky, your third excuse comes from uh, Jose Mourinho, who ranted oh. that, that there were not not enough ball boys to give his team the ball back when his Real Madrid team were beaten by Barcelona in the 2011 Spanish Super Cup. Third cap. Yeah, yeah. I I think I remember that one. So um, I think so. Yeah. Definitely true. Okay, so 3-2, and Jonathan, your penultimate kick now, and it's a player getting in on the act. Um, Ukraine centre-back Vladislav Vashchuk claimed that loud frogs croaking outside the team hotel had kept him up all night, and that caused him to play badly in a 4-0 thrashing by Spain at the 2006 World Cup. It's so bonkers, it may be true. Uh, Yeah, I'll go for it, I'll go third kick. Oh, that's it. You're keeping yourself in the competition. Very good. Yeah, that is true. It, it was one of those. That, as Mark was reading, I was thinking, this is just too, you know, even I, I don't know the answer. 
I don't really know the answers to these till I read the answer, read it on the <laughs> script. So uh, I would have, I could have fallen for that one. Um, Brian, your fourth penalty is courtesy of Liverpool's notorious excuse merchant Jurgen Klopp, whose explanation as to why Roberto Firmino would not challenge for headers in a 2018 game against Wolves because he was afraid of damaging some very expensive dental work he'd just undergone in, on his trademark Nashes. Won't believe it. No, I don't believe it. I mean, <laughs> if, if if Klopp was playing the game, I can believe it <laughs> with those teeth. But uh, I don't think it's fair to uh, blame Firmino. So no, folks, don't believe it. Okay, all right. Well, uh, Jonathan, you've got to get this one to to at least make Chucky uh, score his last one. Um, yeah. And it's former Chelsea forward Eden Hazard who was dropped and fined two weeks' wages for showing up late to a match against Bournemouth in 2015. His excuse. His dog had swallowed a piece of Lego he desperately needed to finish off a giant Harry Potter construction, and he had to save the prize cockapoo from choking. That's going to be false. False. It is false. Well done. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying to keep a straight face at the other end. <laughs> I just knew it because he didn't. I knew that Eden Hazard didn't have a cockapoo. <laughs> yeah, the Lego side of it was completely plausible. Yeah, yeah. When I when I spoke to Mark in the week, he said I'm going to have to do this quiz quickly because I've got to go to Barcelona. I haven't got much time. But reading some of these. Uh, some of these false ones. You obviously had more time on that trip than you, you let on. <laughs> yeah, there's not much entertainment on a on a Ryanair flight from Newcastle to Barcelona. So, <laughs> uh, so this is to this is to win it, isn't it, Chucky? Uh, it is. Yeah. And you conclude the quiz with the recently departed former Fulham owner Mohamed Al Fayed, who claimed the reason they were relegated from the Premier League was down to new owner Shahid Khan having that infamous statue of Michael Jackson stood outside Craven Cottage removed. God kept. Yes, yeah. emphatic, emphatic. I that's, think a, that's, a, that's a five out of five. That's the first time ever. Yeah, yeah. it's a real done blind. Good think, guessing. I think that's great three, guessing. I think that's three wins in a row as well. On uh, a roll. Yeah, good. Uh, Brian, you can smell so, you can smell BS from a mile away. I'm so proud, very, very proud. Very proud. Marvelous. Very well We've been inundated with questions from the listeners in the mailbag, Matthew. So please pick out a few to ask Brian and Jonathan. Okay. Possibly a tricky one, uh, this one for two Scots, but uh, Navdeep Rehill asks, after England's 3-1 victory over Scotland at Hamden Park, Graham Sooner said it would be a huge failure if this current group of English players didn't win a major tournament. Do you both agree with this view? I I, I, uh, I think they've got a great uh, group of players. I think they've got a really strong, strong team. But I'm not sure that the, the, the teams that usually win are, aren't the ones that are obviously two years beforehand. So I think it's too early to start uh, talking them up just now. Um, I mean, they, they could they could win it, but I, I just think that the the teams that usually come through are the ones that have won it in the past and they're sort of serial winners. So I think they, they'll need to go some to to pick up a major a major tournament. Do you do you have this hatred of England the same as uh, Brian does, Jonathan? Uh, I don't feel afraid to give the truth and we don't mind. I don't I don't I wouldn't say hatred. I mean every time we, we play England you want them to you want Scotland to win. I mean that goes back to when I was a wee boy. It was instilled in you. 
and used to work, used to, I mean, when I was a wee boy, I don't know if Brian remembers it as much, but the Home International series, yeah. you used to, that was the, that was the game of the year, you know, and, uh, but no, I'm not, not, I like, I like when, when, when Scotland, uh, triumph, in fact, I like it when any team triumph over England, actually, but, uh, I wouldn't say I've got any hatred, so. Yeah, it's not just me. <laughs> well, you take yours to a different level, though. You take yours to cricket, to tiddlywinks, to ten pin bowling. No, no, so, so do I, actually. Oh, oh, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> you just had to be honest. We don't mind. I'm used I'm used to it with Brian now. Um, Brian, I, I get the feeling, Brian, you're going to say, oh, yeah, England should win the World Cup with this squad of players. But well, I think, I mean, I think that they've got a group of players that are good enough. Uh, whether they perform in the in the not the the finals, assuming they qualify, is another thing. But this for me, why England have not been successful when they've got close to it is that the tactics on the day, not necessarily not the the players, because I think that's been. I don't think that there's there's been enough. Uh, concentration on attacking. I think there's been too much emphasis on defending. Uh, when you get to situations like that, I, I just feel you might as well just have a go at it. And uh, if you lose by being on the front foot, then then okay. But I think England have lost because of they've not gone on the front foot early enough in the games. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I would say. So uh, whether that's a lesson that's been learned by the the management. We'll have to wait and see, but that's that's how that's my reading of it. That had they been a bit more proactive in some of those games, playing another forward rather than a, I mean, I, I get annoyed and I've said it so many times about how many defensive players you need. Uh, in England, I've got a, I've got so many very good attacking players that don't need to have five defenders really or six defenders. You know, they should play. Yeah, but how you fit them into that team style is is another matter. But players should be good enough uh, to play anywhere, in my view, particularly the forwards. So yeah. if they if they keep attacking and picking teams to to go forward and score goals, then yeah, they've got a great chance. Next, it's Mac Dunes who wants to know from Jonathan: Can we get a cheeky wee love triangle on two doors down involving Christine Macker and a character played by Dave Anderson? Says it would be comedy gold. Yeah, I don't think that will ever happen. Actually, not there. Uh, it's on BBC One. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think so. No, I think I think Elaine might have some objection to that. Uh, but the, um, the, the guy must he's mentioning Dave there. He must have been a fan of City Lights all those years ago. So no, I don't think that'll happen. Sorry. Okay, that's a, that's a no then. <laughs> Uh, over to Chucky. Chris Harris asks, "What is Chucky's favourite ever sitcom?" Favourite ever sitcom? Yeah. Of just something that pops out in my head is Faulty Towers. Yeah, that's the one I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you next, but you've answered that question. You both come out with Faulty Towers, then. Yeah? Faulty, yeah. If you, I mean, it's it's tricky. You could, if you're a bit of time thinking about, but Faulty Towers, you know, cracks me up. Every time, yeah. Okay. Last but not least, it's our old friend Cumbrian Dave, and he's got a question for Jonathan. Which Glasgow pub comes to mind where it's likely a Sontaran humanoid will probably just blend in unnoticed? 
<laughs> the lowest thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen, you can take your pick from many. It's, yeah. um, and Brian's taken me in all of them, I think. You, you, that's a very good question, actually, because if you if you got people who would wander into places like that, the, the likelihood is that not people would not not even bother about it. You know, can I, can I tell, have you got time for a quick story which relates yeah. to that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Years ago, uh, Philip asked me to do a sketch show called The Ferguson Theory with Craig Ferguson. And uh, my role in it was Craig used to do stand-up and I used to fill in doing sketches. And there was a sketch uh, about the cat. You know that the... I can't remember the, the exact name again. You guys might remember. Pinhead. Remember the, the horror feature Pinhead? Oh, yeah. 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 Hellraiser. 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 Yeah, Hellraiser. Well, the guy that did that show, prosthetics for that, lives and works in Glasgow. So I got the whole the whole Hellraiser pinhead gear made for me, right? <laughs> the whole lot. I was in at four o'clock in the morning. He's got this fired in and um and the whole the coat, everything, the boots, they even had black contact lenses for my eyes. And I was I got me to BBC, taken out to the location, which is Mulgai, just in the north part of Glasgow. We parked at the car park there, and we're going on through the underpass up to the shopping centre to film in this in, in, in the shopping precinct. And it's about half eight in the morning, and I'm walking up, and two old women are coming down, and I've got all this gear on, and one said to the other, there's that boy, there's Graham Soonis. <laughs> 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 you're, you're kidding me <laughs> absolutely true yeah yeah. I was going to say Brian the amount of times you go in the Lorison and people are all dressed up for that that pub crawl that they do the yeah, people probably, they would, probably wouldn't notice if they were no, yeah. no, probably wouldn't the same way people that go into the pubs all the time wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't I think it's part of that thing people think oh there's somebody trying to stand out or there's somebody to show off whereas in the west of Scotland it's uh, frowned upon, you know. Yes. So they would, they would probably ignore it, saying, "Oh, they're looking for attention. We'll just ignore it," you know. Just ignore it. That's absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes, we'll call it a day there. And the first thing to do is say thanks to Jonathan Watson for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Um, what have you got coming out on the telly for our listeners to keep an eye on? Uh, what have I got coming up? Uh, I think I've got. Uh, I'm in an episode of Annika coming. I'm not sure if that's out yet. Uh, and two doors down should be transmitting BBC One uh, at the beginning, sorry, the middle of November. So hope you can tune in and you enjoy it. Brian and Matthew, thanks to you both, of course. Okay, sir. Thank sure. you, Jonathan. And finally, a big thanks to you out there in the ether for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Please remember to hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter and Instagram at Brian McClare Pod. We're part of the Sports Social Podcast Network, so give those guys a follow too. Do join us again next time for more stuff and nonsense. Cheers. Life with
Podcast Network.